Um, Our second reading this morning is from the Acts of the Apostles. I'm going to be reading uh, chapter 13, verses uh, 4 through 12. Uh, It is in in your uh, bulletins for your convenience. Hear the word of God. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elumas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately missed And darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, you've called us here uh, this morning for your purposes, and we pray that Uh, you would be present with us uh, in the preaching of your word. I pray that you would speak to us, uh, enable us to hear what it is that you um, need to say to us. And Lord, I um, ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So every born-again Christian has been designed for and assigned to some active function, responsibility, role, job, purpose in the body of Christ. Every born-again Christian has been designed for and assigned to some active function, responsibility, role, job, or purpose in the body of Christ. So what's yours? I ask that question because I care about you and I care about the church. And if we're not exercising the function, responsibility, role, job, purpose that we've been designed for and assigned to, then we miss out on the fullness of our relationship with Christ. And if we're not exercising the function, responsibility, role, job, and purpose that we have been designed for and assigned to, then our church is missing out on the fullness of the body of Christ. Every born-again Christian has some active place in the body of Christ. There are no idle parts of the body of Christ. There are no extraneous parts of the body of Christ. There are no unnecessary parts of the body of Christ. If you've been born again, then God has a job for you to do. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, God has made us what we are 
In Christ Jesus, God made us new people so that we would spend our lives doing the good things He had already planned for us to do. Every born-again Christian has been designed for and assigned to some active function, responsibility, role, job, purpose in the body of Christ. What's yours? Now let me outline this sermon so that you can see where we're going. First, uh, both of our readings this morning are about successful leaders of God's people who turn out to be evil. Second, when God calls people to himself, he calls them into an organized body, the church, where each person has a specific role to play. Leadership is one of those roles in a church, and leaders bear a special responsibility. Third, we should know our role in the body of Christ. We have different gifts, we have different callings, but each Christian has some part to play. Fourth, we need to think about how leaders in the church go wrong and what we can do to guard against that. And finally, fifth, we should reaffirm our commitment to our calling in whatever our role is in the body of Christ. So let me begin with the evil leaders. Two evil leaders. One, a Jewish king. The Bible tells us that he did much evil in the sight of the Lord. And the other, a Jewish prophet, the apostle Paul looks at him straight in the eye and says, you son of the devil. Now, the world, of course, is full of evil people. Jesus is pretty clear that there are more people on the highway to hell than on the stairway to heaven. There's no shortage of evil people. But what makes these two leaders noteworthy and why they get a mention in Scripture is because they should have known better. And they should have done better. They were called by God. They were given a position of leadership in the household of God to do good for the people of God, and still they are evil. It's one thing for a mafia don to do evil, and it's quite another thing for a magistrate to do evil. It's one thing for a pimp to do evil. It's quite another thing for a pastor to do evil. And that's because the magistrate and the pastor are called by God to watch over their people and their evil not only injures themselves, it also injures the people that they're responsible for. A Jewish king, a Jewish prophet, both called by God to serve the people of God. And they bear a special responsibility. Now scripture does talk about how leaders are held to a higher standard. They will be judged more strictly. James writes... Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And in Hebrews we read, obey your leaders, be willing to do what they say. They are responsible for your spiritual welfare, so they are watching out to protect you. Obey them so their work will give them joy, not grief. It won't help you to make it hard for them. So leaders appointed by God are accountable for the people who are under their care. When you're a kid, you think it's going to be fun when you get to grow up and become the boss. 
to be the one calling the shots. But then when you actually do become an adult and you find yourself in a position of leadership and responsibility, you discover that it can be a real pain in the neck. One, because knowing what to do isn't always so clear. And two, because every Monday morning quarterback thinks that he knows how to do your job better than you do. Being the president of the United States has to be the hardest job in the world. It seems like everyone, including people who have never so much as run a book club, think they know how to do a better job of running the country than the president. At any given time, about half of the country thinks the president is doing a bad job. And even if you're doing a great job, it's the job of the other party to tell everybody what a lousy job you're doing. Leadership can be hard. When God calls individuals, he calls them into a structured society, into an organism. One piece of that organism or society is a leader. Before Jesus, he called people into the nation of Israel. After Jesus, he called people into the church. God calls people out of the world, out of the nations, into his nation and into his church. And he assigns leaders to that structured organism. When Peter, Andrew, James, and John became followers of Jesus, they also, at the same time, became companions of the other disciples. Peter can't follow Jesus if he's not willing to hang around with Andrew. Paul can't follow Jesus if he's not willing to get along with Peter. If we have a relationship with Jesus, we also have a relationship with the other people who are in the body of Christ. A relationship with Jesus makes us part of something that's bigger than ourselves. A relationship with Jesus makes us part of the church. Now, the Bible uses a number of images for the church, a number of metaphors for the church. I just want to lift up two. One is that the church is a building, and the other is that the church is a body. In First Peter, we read, You also are like living stones, and God is using you to build a spiritual house. You are to serve God in this house as holy priests, offering to Him spiritual sacrifices, that he will accept because of Jesus Christ. So this building that we're sitting in was constructed out of stone. Masons put each stone into its proper place. And when they were done, the sanctuary was ready for worship. A pile of stones is not a building. A pile of Christians is not a church. But if the workers follow the plan of the architect and arrange the stones in just the right way, the pile does become a building. We are like living stones. And each Christian has some special place in the overall church. The architect has assigned us that place. Every born-again Christian has been designed for and assigned Two, some active function, responsibility, role, job, or purpose in the body of Christ. What's yours?
Now the Bible also talks about the church as a body. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all of you together are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of that body. Some of us are hands, some of us are ears, some of us are livers, some of us are spleens. To be in the body is to be a part of the body. There are no vestigial organs in the body of Christ. Every part has a function, a purpose, a role to play. So what part are you? In the body of Christ. Individual Christians have a purpose in the body of Christ. And the church of Jesus Christ as a whole has its own purpose. The primary purpose in saving us was God's... I mean, God's primary purpose in saving us was to bring glory to himself. There is a strange fact that all of creation sings the glory of God except for humankind. We alone among all the creatures are the only ones who are able to rebel and to refuse to give God the worship that he deserves. The worship that we were created to give. And so when God redeems us, when God makes us back to the way that we should have been before we fell, when God redeems us and turns us around from our rebellion, what he makes us into is worshipers. Worshipers of him. Again, back to First Peter, you are to serve God in this house as holy priests, offering him spiritual sacrifices. That's worship that he will accept because of Jesus Christ. The primary purpose of the church, universal, is to bring worship to God. Now, because this sanctuary is laid out like a theater... There is sometimes the temptation of thinking that a church service is like a show or a drama or a concert and that the congregation is the audience. When you go to a theater, you buy your ticket, the usher guides you to your seat, the curtain goes up, and there on the stage are the actors or the musicians and they present you a play or they perform for you some music. What is the job of the audience. Well, a good audience is important at a play or a concert. You've seen how strange professional sports has been without the cheering fans in the stands during this time of COVID. It's hard for the players to play to an empty house. The audience gives the players the reactions that they need for a good performance. The job of the audience is to buy tickets and to show up. That's important. It's to be attentive to the performance. Nothing quite so disheartening for those on the stage as to see members of the audience on their phones. And the job of the audience is to react and to respond emotionally to the ups and the downs of the drama or the musical piece, to ooh and to ah in the right places. And when the performance is over... The audience applauds, they cheer, they celebrate a job well done. If you've ever been to a great performance, the audience and the players feel like they have participated together in a wonderful experience. A good audience is important to a good performance. And some of the most exciting recordings are concerts that have been performed in front of a live audience. But is a congregation in a worship service really an audience? If you think about the sanctuary as a concert hall, you might think 
that the people sitting in the pews are the audience and the people up here in the chancel are the performers. But that's not right. Because God is the audience of our worship. In a worship service, God is the one who's listening. Worship is our spiritual sacrifice. Who's that sacrifice being offered to? Not to you. It's being offered to God. The congregation are the performers. And the people up here in the chancel are the ones who are conducting the performers or directing the performers. Now think about that for a second. Look at this stained glass window up here of of, of Jesus. Now think of him as the audience of the worship that happens in this place. Jesus is watching and listening. He's watching us in the pews. We, the congregation, we're the choir that sings to God. We're the orchestra that plays for God. And the folks in the chancel, when John comes up here with his musicians, they're here to lead us in worship. They make the music that we sing along with. They lead us in the spoken parts. And because God sees not only the outside of us, but also the inside of us, as the preaching happens, that preaching is directed toward your spirit. And if the preaching is happening the right way, the spirit, your spirit is meditating on the word of God. When we sing songs in church, those songs are for the ears of God. The way we evaluate a song is, as a church song is whether or not it's pleasing to God. Are the words biblical? Do they honor God? As we sing, are our hearts filled with a worshipful attitude? If you come to the second service, there will be times when the, when there's a choir here singing and the congregation in that case is sitting and listening, but the choir's not singing to the congregation. The choir's singing to God. And those of us who are in the congregation are meditating in our hearts along with the choir praising God. The choir is leading us in our praise of God. God is the audience of our worship. He's the recipient of our worship. Now, I often pray at the beginning of a sermon, may the words of my mouth, these are words from the psalmist, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Because God is our audience and the meditation of our heart is The worship that we're offering him. Are we putting our hearts and our minds into our worship? Are we giving God our best or are we just showing up? Corporate worship is the beating heart of any congregation. Worship is the primary purpose. Church has other purposes, but worship is the primary purpose of the church of Jesus Christ. On a Sunday morning, there are people up here in the chancel leading the music, leading the prayers, doing the readings. There are people in the back of the sanctuary taking care of the sound and the video. Before anyone arrived here this morning, there were people making sure that the building was clean. 
There may have been people who greeted you at the door as you came in in preparation for the service today. During the week, people chose and rehearsed the music. People made the bulletins. People paid the bills and kept the lights on. People have been at work all week long so that we could gather for worship today because the worship of the Lord is the beating heart of any congregation. David sings in Psalm 84, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. The person who holds the door open for you as you come in, that person is part of the worshiping body of Christ. He has a place in the body of Christ. Every born-again Christian has been designed for and assigned to some active function responsibility, role, job, purpose in the body of Christ. What's yours? What's your role? Where where do you fit into the body? So let me talk about bad leaders. Because both of our scripture texts are about bad leaders. God calls some people into positions of leadership, maybe to be a king of Judah, maybe to be a prophet, Or maybe to be someone who is singing in the sanctuary. And with that calling comes a special responsibility and a burden. God, of course, says to all of his people, be holy for I am holy. We are, as Christians, called to a new way of life. We're supposed to look and to sound different and act different from secular people. Every child of God has a special calling to a new life. And that calling brings with it certain burdens. But the leader of God's people has a double burden. Because not only are they responsible for themselves, they're also responsible for the people that they lead. By worldly measures, Manasseh was a successful king. He was king of Judah longer than any other king. 55 years. And then his son got to succeed him as king. It would be like being the president of the United States from 1965 to 2020. And then having your son take over when you were done. No one lasts that long in power if they're not doing something right. Manasseh must have been a certain kind of economic or political or military genius to survive For a half a century at the top. But the Bible tells us that he was wicked. And that he caused the people of Jerusalem to be wicked too. In fact, the Bible says that the kingdom of Judah under Manasseh's rule was more wicked than the pagan nations that God had driven out of the land. Then in our reading from the Acts of the Apostles, we meet Bar-Jesus, also called Elumas. He's a Jewish prophet living on the island of Cyprus. We see that he's cozy with the Roman proconsul, Sergius Paulus. That's the equivalent of a, of a governor. He's a governor who reports directly to Rome. Bar-Jesus was successful. He had political influence. And Paul looks him straight in the eye and says, You son of the devil. So what went wrong with these two men called by God to lead the people of God? How could they know what was right 
and still do what was wrong. Well, we only have sketchy details, but what is said in Scripture indicates that both of these men gave in to the temptation to increase their power and their influence in the world. They became evil because they wanted power in the world. The false gods that Manasseh permitted, they were worshipped because they promised fertility or victory or prosperity. Polytheism also made the kingdom of Judah more friendly to surrounding nations. Manasseh's success as a worldly ruler may have been enhanced by his embrace of many gods. But scripture tells us he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the sight of the world, he was a success. 55 years in office, his son succeeds him. But in the sight of God, he did what was evil. He led his people into worshiping false gods. Bar-Jesus is also a success. He's a Jewish prophet. He's cozy with the Roman governor. It isn't of it isn't as if every random rabbi in Cyprus was allowed to visit with Sergius Paulus. Bar-Jesus has the ear of a high government official. Isn't that good for the people of God? To have one of their prophets have the ear of the man in charge? In the sight of the world, Bar-Jesus was successful. But Paul calls him a son of the devil. There is a temptation for the leaders of the people of God to think that they're doing something good by being cozy with, by compromising with, by being in bed with the powers of this world. I know I was flattered when I was invited to give an opening prayer at the Pennsylvania Senate. But here is the warning of the Apostle James. James writes, You should know that loving what the world has is the same as hating God. Anyone who wants to be friends with this evil world becomes God's enemy. Now part of the DNA of the church is to always be growing and spreading and multiplying. But while the church is in the world, the church is separate from the world. The word holy means to be separated. The temptation to be cozy with the world, even if it seems to advance the cause of the church or the perceived power of the church, always runs the risk of compromising the message of the church. Of making the church no longer a holy and separated body. If we measure our success by the accolades of the world. If we measure our success in terms of power and influence in the world. Then we run the risk of losing touch with God. So this morning in both of our readings we have the story of. Two leaders of the people of God who were corrupted and were evil and did damage to the people that they were supposed to serve. And we've also talked about how every Christian 
is called to some role, to some job, to some place within the body of Christ. For some people, that is a position of leadership. For those of you who are in leadership, I would remind you that the purpose of the church is to worship God, not to rule the world. When Jesus comes back, we will rule the world. But until that time, we have more important business to do. And for all of us, whatever our position is in the church, I would like for us just to spend a moment at the end of this sermon to answer this question for ourselves. What is my part in the church of Jesus Christ? What place has God called me to in the body of Christ? How has God gifted me for the work of the kingdom of God? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And you have destined us to be rulers and princes in the new heaven and the new earth. But during this time of pilgrimage, as we are the church in a fallen world, you have called each one of us to particular roles. You've given us specific gifts. Lord, I pray that you would show us what it is that you've called us to. I pray that you would make us eager to find ways to exercise our gifts in service to you. To bring more worship to you. Lord God, you have given us our lives. You have given us new life. May those lives be lives of service. May those lives make a difference in the kingdom of God. Lord, may we not be seduced by the kingdoms of this world. Kingdoms that are passing away. May our investment be in the eternal kingdom that you are preparing. Lord, we ask that our lives be a living sacrifice that our lives be worship for you, that they would bring you honor and glory. Lord, you are worthy. You alone are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And so we worship you this day. Amen, amen, amen. Would you all stand now and join with me as we profess what it is that we believe as Christians using the words of the Apostles' Creed? You'll find that printed for you there in the bulletin. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.